Hey, everybody. This is episode 54 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today, I'm speaking with film director Michael Babbitt. When I spoke to Michael in our pre-interview phone call, he told me that he has strong opinions and has no problem sharing them. And this made me really excited because this podcast is a platform for artists to do just that, to share what is important to them, what they're passionate about, beliefs, yearnings, learnings, and discoveries that may benefit others, and most importantly, spark conversations. And I think Michael Babbitt did all that during our energetic conversation about filmmaking. What kind of work goes into making a feature film? How do you go about building a fantasy world? We cover all of that and more as we dig into Michael's most recent feature film, The Last in Line, Saga of the Broken Swords, that will be premiering November 17th at the Varsity Theater in Chapel Hill. Congratulations to Michael and the whole team for this great accomplishment. And P.S., If you're a Dungeons & Dragons fan or you read 50 billion fantasy books about magic and elves and whatnot like I did as a kid, then you are going to be jazzed to hear about this film. More information in the show notes. Michael Babbitt's directing experience covers over 20 years of stage productions and credits for music video, commercials, and narrative short films. Over the years, he has worked for other aspiring filmmakers until starting Bombshell Studios in 2009. His films have been accepted and won awards in film festivals nationwide. He has an MFA from the Professional Acting Training Program at Playmakers Repertory Company and UNC Chapel Hill, and a BA in theater from the University of Missouri at Columbia. He lives in Hillsborough with his wonderful wife and partner in Bombshell Studios. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So, Michael, you've known since you were four that you wanted to be an artist. At 12, you knew you wanted to do film. And at 14, you started making your own movies on Super 8 film. What is it about film and filmmaking that has captivated you so? So when I was little and I was four and then throughout my grade school stuff, I used to do a lot of writing because I read voraciously. And I would always write my own stories because that was what I was doing. And then films, I started to watch films eight or nine, but my, my family didn't, we watched some TV, but we didn't watch a lot of movies. We, um, we had a, when I was really little up till I was like six or seven, we had this little nine inch black and white TV and we would watch TV shows on that. And then we got a larger TV, um, after a while, but movies really started to hit me right around the time I was, I was 10, 11 or 12. And cause I would go see, I went and saw a couple with friends of mine and the visual medium of film for me, it was the natural extension of how to tell my stories. Writing, I'm not a writer. The writer that I work with a lot, he will vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> I can write, sure, but I'm not a writer because I do not like the process of writing. I like to have written. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the a real clear delineation of people who are writers and aren't writers. Writing was, at the time when I was little, you know, that was the thing that I could do. But when I got introduced to film, it was like, uh, you know, that's, 
that's the way I want to tell my stories. I want to the vid that visual medium. It's 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 got sound. It doesn't have touch, obviously, because you can't really touch a film or smell. But but um, of the two set that the sound and visuals of the of of that world and being able to create that. That's kind of what I think was always the thing that appealed to me most. Because even my stories, stories that I would read and stuff like that, I always had. I always could very easily visualize these stories and, and I couldn't draw. So I, I used to read a lot of comic books as a kid as well. But if you think about comic books, comic books for me ended up really being like storyboards for films. So I was realizing that and, you know, in, in the in comic books and I've never been able to draw. So, and I could, you know, I could probably teach myself that because I do feel like, I can, you know, I'm, I'm pretty artistic in a, in many different ways, but I don't like to do that. Whereas on a film set, creating this visual world in this film, directing the actors and putting this all together, I really like doing that. So mm-hmm. that's, it just tells me that that's the medium that I'm, so when I call myself a filmmaker, you know, I feel like. I kind of have owned that and it feels comfortable. So let's talk a little bit about what filmmaking entails, because when we spoke on the phone prior to our conversation, you mentioned that you think there's a lot of overdone romanticizing and glamorizing of the art with a lack of understanding of the actual craft and the quote, hard ass work you have to do. So can you say more about that? Well, that lets me know that I guess I can swear a little bit because you just, I, cause so, I might drop an expletive here and there and that's, um, now I feel a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> I mean, from the get go of this, of the arts, I think are, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's Western society, Western culture. I'm sure it's prevalent in other cultures as well, but maybe not so much, but, but specifically in American culture and Western culture, the arts are this thing that it's it, it it lives in a very diametrically opposed world because it's it's highly glamorized, it's highly worshipped. People put you know put major superstars on these pedestals and and people they don't even know they put on these pedestals. And yet, then when and this is even more so, and this will be very controversial for, for a lot of people. This, I think this is more so with the craft of acting and then into filmmaking and then the, the other arts. Dancers and musicians might argue with me about this, and I can completely understand them wanting to argue about this. But but the art of acting particularly is so you're at, you're it, you are the only instrument and it's an instrument. It's unlike why I say dancing and music aren't quite that same way because the dancer could say, well, it's my instrument as well. (laughs) But in a sense, they're also doing something that's slightly abstracted from what, from what the realness and truthfulness of reality is. So as an actor, we're supposed to be capturing a moment of truthfulness that is truly just human, you know, mm-hmm. just with, you know, no interpretational ideas behind it, like dance, like movement and stuff like that. So, and because it's that, everybody then thinks they can do it. And so while they put these people on pedestals who are rich and famous and superstars and these people that they don't know, even know, the working actor who says to someone, I'm an actor, almost invariably gets a reply 
oh, what do you do for a day job? Or, oh, my favorite used to be, oh, you know, I did some acting in high school. I'd like to try that again. And it's extremely debilitating because what I learned to respond to people, and I've even, I don't respond that way anymore because it's also a conversation killer is I usually look at them deadpan. I used to look at them deadpan and say, try making a living at it. And then they would be up. And, you know, if you think about every other, not, not, not dancers, I'm sure hear this more arts people, but outside the arts, think of any other profession where if you were to say to that brain surgeon, Oh, you know what? I played operation when I was a kid. <laughs> um, this would, you know, I kind of like to, you know, I was always fascinated by the brain. Nobody says that to a brain surgeon. They don't. I mean, nobody says that to an engineer. Oh, you know what? I used to make, I used to make, you know, I used to love working with Tinker Toys or not the, what yeah, was Legos. The, and well, Legos or even, even the more intricate ones that were, you know, they had those building things that were like things you kind of, what were they called? I can't remember what they called, but, but nobody says that to those people, but it's okay to say it to an artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with technological advances in specifically filmmaking, the wonderful thing about the last 15 years is we've had these technological advancements in camera technology. The first Super 8 film I shot in uh, on a Super 8 camera, it was a three minute long film, three minutes of film. And we spent the entire budget of roughly $700 on just buying the film. Oh, my word. <laughs> But, but, you know, with technological advances, it's it's brought the ability of anyone to be able to do it. The problem is that's also that's also a con because then everybody thinks they can do it and they don't realize the work, the process that goes into it. It's not just about picking up a camera. And I mean, you learn a lot of stuff and I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of people like, oh, of course, that's just anything. You know, everybody knows that and stuff. But with the arts, people just think. There's this magic behind it, and there isn't. There is no magic. The magic is what happens between the art and the audience. That's where the magic happens. There is no magic in making anything. There are artists who like to sort of like, they like to cultivate that idea. For me, the ma- there is no magic in the creation of it. Because the magic is between the viewer and the art. So whether that's an audience in a film, a painting, and a paint. And the the viewer of the painting, a song, and the person listening to the song, the real connection happens there. It doesn't happen in the in the unless you're doing potentially live theater. But even then, it's still the connection between the piece and the and the audience. It's mm. not in what these people are doing, and that usually takes a lot of work. It's kind of harkens back to the stuff I was talking about writing. I don't like to write, so I don't like to put the work into writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm never going to be a writer. So to claim I'm a writer kind of says, kind of devalues the work and effort that writers put into their craft. And that's another thing. Arts and crafts, an art is an art. All art is an art and a craft. And with a craft, there are tools, techniques, concepts that are measurable. Like you can measure and you can talk about the difference between the brushstroke of a Renoir as opposed to a Van Gogh. You can do that. The same can be said for acting. But with acting, because acting is so just, it's supposed to be just you. There's this idea that, and actors, some actors do this. They get self-defense, they get defensive about stuff. They claim, oh, you just don't understand what I was doing, or you just don't, you just don't like what I was doing. And I'm like, no, no, no. I can actually 
tell the difference between a truthful moment and an untruthful moment. As a director, I can do that. And, and so I can tell when you're faking it and when you're not faking it. And, oh, but I'm really feeling, no, I can tell you're, I can tell you're manufacturing that feeling. So there, there are actual thing, there are actual things that can be measured. There are tools that an actor can use. You can teach anybody to be an actor. You can teach anybody to be a writer. Them actually becoming a writer or becoming an actor depends on how much they're willing to embrace those tools and put them to work and utilize them and, and, and improve their craft. And then the talent comes in. The talent you can't teach. You can't teach somebody to be a brilliant actor. But there are plenty of actors in the world who are not brilliant that have good careers because they know how to use techniques. They know how to use the craft. They can sell stuff by doing that. But you can teach anybody to act, but those tools, you know, y- you have to embrace them. You have to know how to use them. Where the talent comes in and the, and the, the genius happens and, you know, where you get, you know, uh, some of our phenomenal artists or actors or singers or, or dancers or vocalists or whatever, where that comes in is the work they put in and making the tools and how they use the tools and what they do with those tools. Van Gogh wouldn't be Van Gogh without his interpretation and use of color. But he didn't just go, I'm going to take all these colors and put them together and magically this is what happened. He doesn't just whip it out. No. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, now, later in his life, as his technique developed and he got better, sure, improvisational things can happen much easier because you've rehearsed it many times. You've practiced many times. It's the same thing has to be said for acting, but because acting is just our bodies, just our voice. I mean, the question that used to bug me when I was acting that I always got all the time too was, how do you memorize all those lines? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, that is the easiest thing an actor has to do. The easiest. If that is what you feel is tough, you should never try to even think about acting. And if you're an actor... If you're listening to this and you're an actor and you think memorizing lines is the hardest thing you should do, I'm going to suggest you look into a different field because that's not the, you're obviously not embracing what is the hard part, which is all the other work. I I totally agree with you 100% that this is all really hard work, but I don't know a lot about what it means to be a filmmaker. So I, I feel pretty ignorant about that. Can you give me an example of something that's a really hard thing that you have to do as a filmmaker that other people wouldn't guess at because they, they haven't done it. Oh, all the preparation. Um, I don't, I don't like to do all the preparation. I liked, I'm a director. I want to direct. I like being in on production, on set, working with the actors, creating this. And I, I mean, I like world building as well. That's where you get a lot of what you, you will notice about the films we've made. They're very distinct, rich individual worlds the writer and I, we love doing this kind of stuff, but the, the planning, you know, there's a lot of stuff you wing when you first learn it. Cause you don't know. I mean, obviously that that's fine, but a lot of people continue to do it that way and they never improve. And being on their sets is always the same. The cinematographer has never seen a shot list because somebody didn't create the shot list. The director didn't sit down and they didn't make a shot list. So preparate. So they're trying to figure out what shots they're going to make on the set and stuff like that. Not, not that you have to have like, like actual ironed out shot lists, but if you don't, cl- aren't clearly able to see what you're going to be able to do and to 
be able to convey that to whoever is going to like your cinematographer or my production designer or the costume people. If I'm not able to help convey that, they have no idea. So they're shooting in the dark too. And they come back with something that's like, no, that's nothing like what I want blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's all that preparation. I do all of that preparation. I, I immerse myself in the process of filmmaking. When I really decided again to get back into it after the long hiatus of working as a professional actor, but when I decided to get back behind the camera and really start doing it around 2005, and I tend to do this with anything when I decide I'm going to do something, I read voraciously. Uh, and, uh, YouTube was starting to get big, but it wasn't as big as it is now. So I didn't have as many YouTube videos as they have now. Now I go a lot, you know, if I'm like, I I have no idea how to do this. I Google it. I spend days looking at videos about stuff, take it all in and then go, okay, we're going to try it. I think we're going to try it this way. I did that with filmmaking and I only do that so that when I get on the, because the first film I ever made when I came back in 2006 was, (laughs) was, it was a very learning experience because I didn't direct any. I was the director, but I didn't direct anything on that set because because I was so I was worried so much about all the technical aspects of everything because I didn't know all this stuff and you know we didn't have a very big budget at that point because we were just starting out so there was no budget. The sound person we picked for this wasn't an actual sound person. The recorder they had was I don't remember what recorder it was, but it was not a real you know, it wasn't great. The microphone, the air. So anyway, learned a lot of it at that. But then through the process, you go, you learn that, but doing a lot of research and, and gradually getting better and do all that planning so that when I get on set, I am available to actually direct it. I don't have to worry about, I've got my cinematographer who has embraced what we're doing, knows where we're at. We're on the same page. We've talked, we've had many conversations they might see something in the shot and go, Hey, I don't know if you, do you want me to try to capture that? And I'd be like, yeah, how do you want to do that? And they, what if I do this? I'm like, that's fantastic. It's something like that. And I realized that I'm moving my hands visually and this is not a visual <laughs> medium. So, um, so you're probably not going to know what I was just doing right there, <laughs> but um, the, it's the prep- the preparation is the hardest thing. It's for me, it's, I don't like the logistics. I've gotten to be fairly competent at it purely out of necessity. So that when I'm on set, I don't have to think about this stuff because that then takes away from me being able to work with what's in front of the camera. That's ultimately what we're capturing here. So that I think is the hardest thing. And that's a lot too. I mean, that's that's kind of a big, any one thing, I think the first thing I realized straight on in the very first film is on our first film, the next film we did, we're hiring the sound guy mm. and we're going to, we're going to pay a sound guy to do the sound, an actual sound person. Because the sound on our first movie really sucked. Uh, yeah, that seems important. Oh, yeah. It's really important. It's more important than the visuals, actually, in many ways. Because everybody forgives a blurry blurry image. Everybody will like, oh, that looks a little blurry. That was, was that a little blurry to you? Or a, or a slightly off composite, you know, cutting off somebody's head in the middle of a shot or something. like. That. You'll forget it. You might notice it, but you'll forget it. But, man, if you have to sit through a movie with bad sound, try doing it sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will do it. So I want to go back when you're talking about the three minute movie you made on Super 8 and the cost of that for such a short amount of time. It was the cost of the film that was so expensive, right? You you couldn't burn the film like you can today. Do you think that that kind of training helped you in any way be more efficient? I don't think I'm 
as efficient with some of my shot because I'll let shots run really long because I'm like, oh, it's just digital <laughs> um, sometimes. But, you know, then there are other times. I think that's helped me to understand originally about really being clear about what I want to see within the shot. So that helped. And I think that carries over in my shot planning and my, my storyboarding and things like that so that when we get to the set, it's always nice when happy accidents happen. You'll, the actor will do something that you realize isn't going to be caught in the way we currently have something composed. And we'll, you know, we'll go, well, but, but we've planned enough that we're able to, to work in something like that because we have so much planning in the past. We don't have to go, well, what is this going to screw up? Mm-hmm. What is this going to do? You know, how is this going to affect it? We know how it will fit in and we can, we can do something like that. So I think that has helped me on that end. Whereas I think today, uh, filmmakers start starting out, you know, now really get into it now that haven't worked with film as a medium and expensive film because digital is so cheap. I think they won't necessarily have the discipline to worry about what's inside because they can just go, oh, let's do another shot over from this angle. Let's do another shot over from this angle. And then that can spend a lot of time because one of the things about our films that I've noticed is because of the planning we do, at times we can work in some fairly intricate shot ideas and do some really interesting camera movements, shot angles, juxtaposition, things, things like that. And it lends our films a little bit more depth. Whereas I think flying by the seat of your pants in the beginning with experience, this all, obviously this all changes. Cause again, like I was with the example of Van Gogh being able to paint, um, I'm sure later in his career, he could throw up a canvas and start whipping stuff up and, you know, create something that was at least, Hey, that that's appealing might not be one of his best works, but it was at least something that was appealing, but that's through years of practice research, work, you know, habitual going over and stuff like that. So you can do, you can do a little bit more. You can fly a little bit more by the seat of your pants as, as you're more experienced. But in the beginning, you'll see a lot, a lot of beginning films. I see from beginning filmmakers, they don't have a, a large composition vocabulary. And I think that working on film you don't have the opportunity to just try things like you do in digital because it's so such cheaper. Right. So much cheaper. I don't think you do digitally either because time is also an expense an expense. But the mistake often happens is they don't do that planning. So they end up going, oh, we can only get these three particular shots. So we have to do them in these three at these three angles. Mm-hmm. And then the whole film looks like those three angles. Right. Right. Whereas if they planned it, they could have probably done 10 different types of shots. And there's a wider vocabulary. You can use the, you know, you can use the medium to stimulate or provoke in better ways because you know, you know what lo- a longer wider shot will do as opposed to a real extreme close up. what a moving shot does, how that affects the audience, how that affects what's happening, how that affects the story. You, you can think about that kind of stuff. Let's talk about your big project. Let's talk about the last in line, a saga of the broken swords, which is your latest independent feature film to be released this fall. It was three years in the making. Actually, by the time we get to its release, it'll, Almost have been four years. Wow. All right. So four years, almost four years in the making, shot entirely in sound stages on your property in Hillsboro. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you describe it as a, quote, tribute to friendship and honor born out of a love of fantasy, storytelling, and Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) 
First of all, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you that's, very much. That's amazing. So there's a lot to talk about with this piece, and I have a lot of questions, but I was particularly interested when I was doing my research with the world that you created for the film. Mm-hmm. Now, you work as a team with Christopher Lee Jones, who's a writer, right. and you describe the the both of you together as world builders. Yeah. In Last in Line, you created a fully formed fictional world complete with a language. Would you give us a sense of the scope of the world that you made? Well, it's big. (laughs) But again, it's through years. I mean, because both of us have been avid Dungeons & Dragons players for about the time. Well, I started when I was a a teen, but I'm older than Chris is. Because he started when he was like 10 or 11, I think he said. But I'm older than he is. So he actually started after me. Yes, Chris, you started after me. <laughs> uh, if you're listening. But because we've done this and we've always... And we, we we met in college. And even in college, we gamed together. And we were always tossing out ideas. We were always making up things. We we had this elaborate... Uh, one, um, one game we ran was superheroes. And we had this huge elaborate world around superheroes. Homages to some that we are... That we, uh, our favorite superheroes, but then new ones that we created and backstories and backgrounds and historical ideas. And, and that's what we like to do in terms of the world building, stuff like that. So when we approach a screenplay, especially for a feature film, we tend to kind of take the same approach. We spend a lot of time talking to each other, texting back and forth, talking on the phone, throwing out ideas, all kinds of stuff before there's even a word that's written, really. I mean, a word of the screenplay that's actually written. And we just go through this process of making things up and putting together concepts, putting together ideas. There will be things that we develop for the story that's a backdrop. One of the characters in the film um, is named Slab. It's hinted at. In one very, very short scene, short shot, actually, of something that he does that hints at he's a mixed blood character in this world and actually has the blood of one of the enemy races in him. Mm. But it's never something we actually talk about in the story. But that developed out of the idea of who he is, what his profession is, what he does as a warrior in the story. And his past, and we we're creating his past and stuff like that. But this is stuff that never comes up in the actual film itself. But it gives gives the depth. So when we talk about the film to other people, to especially the production team, the people that were making it, the actors themselves, we can talk about all this, and it helps enrich in what's, what, what, what's there. So we're pretty fanatical about it. Sometimes I'm sure we go overboard because <laughs> we can get really in-depth about stuff. That's that's where we that's the world building. That's what we do. So that's where it all, it's all born into and it all funnels into eventually funnels into the screenplay as meat for the sustenance for the screenplay. Do you have maps and like family trees mm-hmm. and all of that? Um I, we don't have a family tree. We don't have family trees, but we do have maps. We have conceptual ideas for all the different you, you hear in the film you'll hear references to other races and other cultures that aren't seen in the film, but you'll hear little hints and snippets of them. And those have, those, those are not just name dropped things in the film. They actually, now are they fully fleshed out? Like you like, we could immediately make a film in that area. Probably not, but it's fleshed out in the sense that we could talk about it at length. So people that have had interactions with people from that area would get a sense of what it would have been like to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so there's maps, there's regional descriptions of things, 
towns, different concepts of their geography, their, their, um, their governmental makeup. You know, it's, it's, it's primarily a feudal world. Um, cause it's set in like, it's, it's a fantasy setting. Technologically, it's around probably 12th, 13th century technology for the most part. But there is one, there is one, um, region in the world called, uh, the, called Serenia that actually dabbles in, uh, that has a little bit more technological advancements. And there are little tiny hints of that within the film, but they're not brought to the forefront because it's bad. It's, it's the world they live in. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, we don't sit around and talk about the technological advance in our normal everyday kind of conversations. So they don't do that either. So, so there's not a lot of exposition about, we bring up, we bring in a lot of flavor to it without a lot of exposition of, you know, things will get mentioned or things will get seen that we don't particularly necessarily feel like we have to explain, but it has a very clear background and it's been written about and we know about it and things like that. And we share that with uh, the actors to bring the world to life. It seems especially important when you're creating a fantasy world that you do this because it gives from an acting perspective, it gives the actors some context. So for example, if we were making a movie today and I was talking about Texas or Japan or Canada or Mm -hmm. the president or somebody, you and I have a shared understanding of what that means. And I can then talk about it in a way that shows that I it has meaning for me. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about a made up place, you need to create that so Mm -hmm. that you have that same emotional quality around it. And that sort of informed way of speaking about it, it seems really necessary to have for the actors. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, nece- it's very necessary for the actors because they let it inhabit them. And so it just, it, it will come out um, in acting terms. I talked about the tools earlier that can be taught in acting terms. This is basically what we call a given circumstance. And this kind of stuff helps to feed the actor's imagination so that they can inhabit the characters and really make them watchable, relatable, not necessarily likable because one of the things about this film that I always emphasize to the actors was they're playing, they're playing characters that all kill people for hire. So from the get go, we're not starting out with a very likable group of people. (laughs) Now, not that there aren't going to be traits that you like about certain characters. They do have their own honor. They talk about honor. They, you know, they can be likable, but none of them are heroes. Mm. They all might do heroic actions, but they kill people for hire. That's what they're, they're, they're a mercenary army. They're brought in to do things that nobody else wants to do. And not for a political cause, not that it's for money. Hmm. Some of them might have other, and that's, that's where you get the character nuances and stuff, and stuff like that. So, but you want the characters to be relatable. You want to at least, you, you want to make characters that people will sit and watch. They might disagree with things. They might not like these characters in the sense that they don't like what they're doing, but they're incited to watch the film. Right. Um, and I hope that's what we've done. But yeah, it really helps. That kind of world building really, really, really immensely helps with the, the characters for the, um, for the actors. And I think it does for the audience too, because one aspect of a lot of other fantasy films, and one of the reasons why... Um, we chose to put this in a fantasy setting. One of the first things that Chris and I decided on when we were making this, and I think I said it to him, I'm pretty certain I said it to him. I said, I want to make the kind of film that we wanted to watch when we were at our in our heydays of gaming. Okay, now 
there have been a number of movies that have been made based off Dungeons and Dragons and gaming and stuff like that. But if you watch a lot of these films, a lot of them, the, the people that the filmmakers that make them, many of them are gamers. And you can tell because they're they're really excited about the gaming aspect of it, the gaming part, even though it's they're trying to set it in a fantasy world and they're they're interested in in you know kind of adhering to the gaming mechanics of the game itself, the rules of the game itself. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and you can't tell it's a different medium. Yeah. So it's like translating books to movies. Mm-hmm. Our gaming at the gaming aspect of it. Is it, it, it's only because that's what where we developed our really developed our world building techniques, our love of this genre, world building itself, creating the backstories and all this stuff. It's that love that's we talk about the gaming aspect because it's not a gaming movie. It's we don't talk about any rules from the games. Mm. We don't make any references to the games. It's not set in any game setting. But um, if we were ever to watch a movie, it, it's the kind of movie that we wanted to see, and that was that was kind of where the the um, that was one of the original concepts behind the when we make the movie. So, what about the? The costumer and the person who did the makeup, how did they interpret the world that you created? Awesomely. (laughs) I'll I'll say that. And I'm going to name drop here. Okay, do it. So my costumer and props person, Anne-Marie Crossman, she's a local. Oh my God, really great. Jill Cromwell, our 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 key makeup person, and her two assistants, um, Alex Finnegan and Ariana Tysinger. Oh my gosh, great. And then our production designer and our art director, Miyuki Su and Laurel Lane, who are also all locals, made my journey into the world of the Broken Swords so exciting. They were all phenomenal. They all, I mean, what they did for uh, real, the realization of bringing this to life, for me, the key is when I set out to make a film, if at the end of the film, when the film is made, I look, look at that film and go, yeah, that's exactly what I saw when we set out to make it. I'm totally disappointed. Completely dis. In fact, I'm like, I just wasted everybody's time. <laughs> I should have just done it all myself for right. one. So the collaboration, what I, I can't express what they brought to the collaboration. I mean, it's it's... Every, every turn of the, every turn we would do something, you know, I, you know, I would, obviously as the director, it's my job to take all of these people with these real great creative instincts and mold them into something that's cohesive. That's, that's really what the director does. I'm kind of like a big cat herder, (laughs) but with a lot of really genius cats, Um, (laughs) actors, only genius cats need to apply. Yes, right. only genius cats need to apply. No, because everybody, that, you know, when you got all this talent there, the idea for the director is to bring all that talent to make something cohesive. I've been in productions where the director allows everybody to go off on their own creative impulses completely. And it's usually, and it every instance I've ever seen of that, it's a disaster because you've got nothing is cohesive. It, it doesn't, it doesn't live in the same place. And you'll see this and go, but that doesn't make any, that doesn't feel anywhere near like what, how this is, you know? So it's, it's, so the director's job is really basically to help mold this into something that works in an overall conceptual thing. My wife says, well, at Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFP. I have to admit that. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I mean, I'm an idealist. So I have this ideal world and then 
through the creative process of it, they make it even more ideal because their ideas, as we mold them and change them, you know, somebody will come to me and one of the, uh, one of the really baseline things was color wise. When we talked, when the, the team got together to talk about colors, I really emphasized, I didn't want, except for, except for magic when magic is used or in magical circumstances, I didn't want any unnatural, too vibrant colors to be in the film because you don't find that in so much. And I mean, there are places where you can, but it's not as prevalent in nature. I want us to look out the window and look at nature and see the greens in nature, the blues in nature, the yellows, the browns, the, the ochres. This, that's what needs to live in this for the most part in this world. And then with the magic, when we introduce the magic, that can be a step above that. There can be places, you know, there were things like, um, one of the costumers, uh, I mean, one of the costumes, I think it was for the character of Hobnail. It might have been Kaylee because they're the two primary magic users in the the film. But I think it was Hobnail. There was some stitching on one of Hobnail's things that I said, let's make that a vibrant color. Because, because she has these magical aspects to her. So maybe that's a magical talisman. And that it's a little bit different. You know, there are no fluorescent colors in this movie. You know, there are no vibrant... There are no... Well, I can't... Again, we can't point because we're not... There are no... If you see a red, the reddest naturally we would have would be like the red of a cardinal's breast. Right. You know, that kind of red. Not the red of a stop sign, which is a perfectly artificial man-made printed color. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a deliberate choice. And so initially when we were getting together, there were there were some more there were there was much more color they were trying to bring into it. And I was like, I think, you know, I was like, I like the idea of this being this a purple, but this purple is way too bright. It needs to be a much more, you know, something, a purple that you might find out, like the purple from a violet. Mm. Um, and then again, because these are soldiers that have been on a campaign for years, it also has to be really worn out. Right, right. <laughs> Dirty purple. <laughs> because, you know, they don't have, they don't have steam cleaning. Um <laughs> Unless they're in a hot bath in a <laughs> cave somewhere. But, you know, so that kind of thing. So they're the contributions of, of my production team. And that, that then spills over into my cinematographer and now the post-production team. That what they're doing over at Productions, they're doing our post-production sound. And then our composer who's come on, you know, after everything was shot, Zach Campbell. I, I just, I can't even talk about how awesome it is. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I, get, I get new surprises every day. You know, uh, they'll send me a visual effect that I had. I describe what I wanted to see. What, you know, this is, kind, this is the idea we're looking for. There's a ma- um, hobnail cast several magic spells. One of them is a flame ward. It's, you know, it's to prevent flaming arrows when they come in. It extinguishes flaming arrows. Doesn't stop the arrow, so the arrow can still kill you. But it prevents the barn from burning down <laughs> with everybody in it. So it's a flame ward. So I described kind of the concept of what this flame orge when she casts it what it should look like and then when these guys take that and interpret what i do and they come back and they show me this thing and i play and i play and i watch it and i go oh my god oh my god oh my god that looks so much cooler than i would have ever done if i had to do it myself yeah so it's just it's very exciting i don't know if you've seen stills from the film Mm -hmm. but if you've seen what the production team did with the costumes and the makeup and you know, it's 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 hard not to step on a set like that, step on the set and roll the camera with everybody in front of it and have the actors not buy into what's going on because they feel like 
I don't know. You, did you see how dirty they all were? Yeah, it's it's incredibly rich. I mean, I have seen the stills, yeah, and it yeah. really it and it's getting even better because those were all uncolor correct. Those didn't color corrected yet, huh? So, um, you know, the the post production hadn't done the matching and the color correction and sweetening in it and all, and making it really, really lit. Oh God, can't I? I've seen the color corrected footage, and I'm like, holy <laughs> shit! I can say that. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. All right. I want to get a sense of the timeline of this Mm -hmm. because you've been throwing out a lot of pieces, parts of how to make a film, but I don't quite understand the sequence. So how long was the sort of script development process and then what happened? And kind of take me through Mm -hmm. the Well, in 2015, for various different reasons, I decided uh, that I needed to take into my, my hands getting a feature film shot. Because we, we have another feature film that's actually in the hands of some L.A. producers mm-hmm. right now that we'd been developing for a while that the budget for that is much larger than this area was able to help us with. And so we took it to some L.A. and they're doing I'm still I'm still attached as director um, and they're still looking for funding. But but I no longer have control on whether or not that gets made. So I was like, I need to make a feature film. So that's where it started. And that started probably late 2014. I began just thinking about, you know, what are we going to do if this doesn't get picked up, blah, 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 blah. 2015, I began to seriously start thinking about, okay, we need to figure out something to, I need to figure out something to do. So I started doing it. And whenever I try to germinate ideas, I generally don't try to sit down and go, I want to make a movie about this because it feels very ramrodded. Mm. For me, it's a lot of, I just started reading a whole bunch of stuff, watching a whole bunch of stuff you know, just taking things in. And so the germination for the idea happened around January, February, 2015. And then I spent about five months processing what is the potential that this could be done? What would a potential really baseline bare bones budget be? What would this look like? Where would we go with this? What kind of thing could we do this? What are the feasibilities of all this? And then in May, once I realized, once I came to the conclusion, okay, I think that this is possible. I had a, I had an idea for the story. I had an a, kind of an idea for the world. Not really many ideas for characters or anything like that. Then I approached Chris. I said, Chris, I've got this idea. Would you consider writing the screenplay for this? He said, sure. Uh, we we had been through the whole process of our the other feature, The Endless Whispers. We did the same process. And that took a really long time. That threw, went through like 15 drafts. But he wrote a draft... And we we had many conversations while this was going on. So a lot of this has kind of happened simultaneously as well. But from about May, I want to say it was September or October of 2015. He was working on the draft of the script and would occasionally send me send me snippets. And I, he sent me the first 25 pages, I think. I think he sent me the first 25 pages. And I read the first 25 pages and I said, I hate you. Um, he goes, he goes, I don't want you to send me the rest of it until it's done because I'm so on edge. I want to know, I, I want to get the surprise of finding out where it's going. So I told him not to send me anything else. And so then he, he pro- finished the script and I, I think it was somewhere around October and I got the finished script and I was, I was seriously impressed with it as a first draft because it was way further along than anything else he had done as first draft. But in hindsight, part of that is also because we were really working in a medium that we loved. I mean, medium is the setting. Right. It's a fantasy setting, Dungeons and Dragons. All of our background from gaming stuff started coming to play. We pulled stuff in from our old stories and things like that. So um, the process of writing it, 
up to about that first draft was somewhere around, I, I want to say it was like October. The writer and I started, Chris and I started, um, you know, our tweaks to the to the script and stuff like that. Things changes we're going to make, blah, 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 whatever we're going to do with that. And then we started the process of putting together all the logistics of the production. Because we were, that would have been October 2015 and the idea was to shoot November of 2016. So we started that whole process of cinematographers, production team, blah, 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 and all that, and trying to bring in everybody. And we had our first, because remember, this was originally supposed to be shot in November of 2016. So we started our production meetings, like, we started them way too late, which is part of the reason why it was good that it got delayed anyway. Because we started, I want to say, with full-blown production meetings with the whole team, once actors' cast have been assembled, production team has been assembled, the original cinematographer was still part of that. We started our production meetings like July or August. Started discussing about that. We started building the set, cost getting costumes together. Started putting some of that. Started doing all that around July, August, and stuff like that. And then you know, so that was full blown. And then in November when it got pulled and we dropped the project. We had rented a whole bunch of stuff for the project that came anyway because we'd already paid for it. And my wife said, why don't we shoot some proof of concept stuff of what we're trying to do? And then potentially we could use that to maybe look for some kind of funding or get people interested in the project, blah, 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 whatever. So we did that. And then I went on a hiatus for about two months. And during this time, all kinds of stuff is happening because we were up until the first day of shooting, we were st- we were still tweaking the script and stuff mm. like that. It went through, I think it went through six total drafts. But anybody who says that they're shooting their actual shot draft shot from day one and they and they shoot exactly what they shot by day seventeen, I think they're lying <laughs> because you even find things out right in the in the process. That's wait a minute, I didn't realize you say this. But later you say this, holy crap, how did we miss that? So we got to change that line, you know, so there's always tweaks like that. But, but it went through roughly five or six good, solid draft rewrites um, to get to what we want. And then the production theme. And then we went on a hiatus for a couple of months while I cleared my head and tried not to hate the rest of the world. (laughs) Because because you had to drop the project. Yes, because we had to drop the project. And we, and we'd already put my, uh, as it's, primarily self-funded, almost exclusively self-funded, we'd already put a good deal of money into it. So it was going to be like, that's that's this much money down the tube. Right. And I'm not talking about four figures. I'm talking about five figures of money. Oy. Um, and five much higher figures, not low five figures. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- that had already gone into it. And then, you know, January, I said, all right, if we're going to do this, we have to lay out some certain things. And then we started the process again you know, there was lots of, there was a number of replacements that had to happen because for whatever reason, one way or another, people decided to either move on or couldn't be in the project or scheduling issues, things like that. Um, and then that, this time we started a lot earlier with the whole pre-production buildup because we started that, we had our first meeting in June sec, uh, June 2nd. And in hindsight, even now I would say, I wish it had been May 2nd, but um we start June 2nd and really ramp things up. And that's when we went in a real full pre-production build up, finishing the set, finishing all the costumes, getting ready, you know, arranging all the logistics, you know, where we're housing everybody, how we're feeding everybody, where all the money's coming from. Yeah. There's thousands of details that went into first day of shooting. Um, 
ranging flights, blah, 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 blah. And that's that. And then, so it doesn't stop there because <laughs> we had production. We wrapped. I told everybody not to call me for a month. And uh, after a few weeks of decompression from the whole process, a bit of cleanup around the house because 30 people in a house every day for 17 days takes its toll. Yeah, I bet. I imagine. <laughs> After that, um, I went into the editing room and started editing the the film, putting putting together the film. And I had a really good rough draft of the film in about a month. And then spent about a couple of months finagling it, going back and forth. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Blah, 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 doing that. And then we started into post-production, the visual effects and the sound and stuff like that. And getting bringing that team on board, getting them up to speed with where everything was. Um, the composer getting him up to speed with everything was, and now we're at the very tail end of that process, and the end is almost here. So the post production takes ten months. Would you say um, for us? It's gonna. I think from start to finish of post production, it will have been. We're actually going to be premiering. I think almost exactly one year from the day we wrapped. This is an extraordinary amount of work, and we've talked about how much work it is. Mm -hmm. How did you sustain your passion for this project over these last few years? Because I'm really hard-headed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think anybody who knows me will tell you that. <laughs> um, especially anybody that I've mentioned in this, in this, in this uh, podcast. That's how I know I'm doing what I love. That 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 it's that's if this were if this were a book, I would have long quit by now. If I was writing a book, I would have long thrown this in the trash can and said, screw this. Because there have been a number of times where I've started writing novels and they never get very far. Because it's not something I'm really that that learning that craft and doing that craft is not something I've ever I've ever been really passionate about. This but that you know, this is where my passion is. And on the one hand, Nobody else is going to see it through. Mm. If it's not me, it's not it. It won't get done. So I have that responsibility. Um, you know, I have the weight of the responsibility. All these creative people brought in this really amazing stuff, and it would be really frustrating for me to know that that's still sitting in a on a shelf somewhere, unfinished. There are a number. Of, I know a number of people. Actors, demo reels talk to me about this all the time, how they never gotten demo reel footage from stuff that they've done because it's never been finished. You know, that 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 to me is disheartening. You spend all this time working on this, never to have it like, I'm going to get really serious here and say it'd be like having a child and never letting them leave the home. Yeah. And seeing what that child is going to do to the world. So this is kind of like that. This is kind of, you know, I want I want to see this out there. You know, it may go nowhere. It, it may totally, you know, there may be five people that ever see this movie. I have no idea. That part, that, that the whole distribution end of things is an even more frustrating story that would take an entire podcast in and of itself to talk about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the difficulty, and that's the other aspect about the glorification of the art that frustrates me too. You know, the, you know, and then I say, I made this film and they go, oh, do, do you, do you, I've never seen that. Is there anything that I, you, you, you've done that I, that I've seen? Yes. And you say no. And they go, oh, <laughs> and it's like, you can't feel more devalued as an artist like that because I can guarantee you there's a lot of stuff that has been popular and is seen by everybody. And in Hollywood that my stuff is way better than that. Right. Now there's a lot of stuff that's popular 
and has been seen. That's way better than my stuff. I'm okay with that. But do not equate popularity and income and fame with the integrity and worth of the art. And you can probably tell right now, you can see me visually. You can probably tell this is a real hot button with me. Somebody does that to me. That, that, that's the, that's, that's the quickest way to end a conversation with me. I can see a little bit of, (laughs) a little bit of steam coming out of your ears. Just a little bit. All right. So I want to talk about one more piece here before we wrap up. And that is your premiere is coming up. You think in November? Yes. We're pretty certain it's going to be the second weekend in November. Okay. What happens leading up to a premiere? Finishing the film. <laughs> but is, is there <laughs> something... Making sure the film's ready to be premiered. <laughs> but is there something after that that you have to do that is, like, premiere-specific? Well, I mean, we have to arrange for renting the theater, letting everybody know the invitation. The premiere itself is probably going to be um, invitation-only mm-hmm. because the theater we're going to do it at, we think we're, we think we're going to be doing it at the Varsity Theater. We're pretty certain that's where we're going to try to do it. Um, it seats only a certain amount of people, and we have enough cast members who want to invite family members that it will most likely fill the auditorium. So we won't be able to like offer like outside seats. If we get into the larger of the theaters and the response from the cast and crew and who's all coming and who they're all bringing doesn't fill up the theater, then we will open some limited, limited ticket sales to it. But um, it's primarily going to be basically a red carpet gala event for, for the cast crew. It's really a celebration because these are all the people that put all the work into it. Right. So it's a chance for us all. It will be the the last chance, most likely. We will all have a chance to be together to watch what we did, see the final product of what we did, and you know celebrate or condemn. I'm hoping it's more celebratory. <laughs> um, celebrate what we did. So so you know, there's just that process. That believe me, compared to making a feature film, putting together a premiere is like. Pfft. Um, <laughs> it's no biggie. Yeah. yeah. And then how might the general public see this? Okay. So the day that it premieres, the goal is the day that it premieres one, we just, we just did a, uh, an Indiegogo campaign where we did raise a little bit of funding to supplement what we're doing. It, what we raised was 2% of our total budget. And we raised, we rate, no, no, it's not, even, no, it's not even 2%. The budget is about $120,000 and we just raised 3000. So anyway, that's the percentage of what we just raised. We did that. We wanted to help supplement um, the post-production needs. We would love to have more. Um, We wanted to get, we were trying to raise more for post-production. We knew we were going to pay for everything else up to production, but afterwards we were hoping to try to find a way to get a little bit of supplement to supplement. But um, so we raised that. So in that you were able to either, um, depending on what reward you got, you could actually get an invitation to the premiere or you could get you'll get a link you'll get a link that allows you to see the film the same day that it premieres. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that 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 will happen. At the same time, we're also working on getting the film. Um, the film will be on Amazon Prime. It might possibly be on Hulu, and there's a possibility we may be able to get it on iTunes, where somebody can go and rent it or uh, to watch it and stuff like that. So there will be a play. And then we will be doing a DVD, Blu-ray, an initial D&D, uh, DVD. We, <laughs> we don't have a lot of money um, because all of it was spent to make the movie. Right. <laughs> so what we'll be doing initially will primarily be for cast crew, to fill our Kickstarter stuff, any leftover stuff then for potential sales. But if it starts to really 
if people really start to buy the movie, we will then look into some. We're we're hoping to take this to comic book conventions around the country and the world and sh- let them show it, generate some word of mouth, and then there's a potential next year we're gonna go. We're gonna take the film to um, the American Film Market, which is in San Diego every late October, early November, and it's the largest largest film market in the world. Hmm. There's one here and there's one in Asia, and it basically. Filmmakers from everywhere, independent films come from everywhere. The big companies come from everywhere and they come to this place and they look at various projects in various different stages of production. So some as early as, you know, we're still writing the script, but this is our story idea and we have a concept. We have some concept images to finish productions and we might try to look to see about possibly finding a distributor who might want to pick it up. And do a large scale, more large scale sort of sales distribution, like either through DVDs or video online stuff. Kind of that's kind of uh, with every other film with with the the big feature film that we have with the producers in LA. That that was always part of the goal because you know making money is. But with this, when we set out to do this, I couldn't I couldn't rely on that happening to be able to get the film made because then it would mean we were taking something out of our our ability to fulfill it. Cause right. if it doesn't get picked up, then we would never get the film made, which is kind of right now what is happening with the endless whispers. Whereas this one, we wanted to get the film made. So once that gets done, everything after that for me, totally gravy. Hmm. It'd be great. I mean, my real, I think with this world and what we've done, the ideal place for this would be to get picked up as a TV series. For, uh, yeah, you know, for yeah. some of the some of the, some of the networks that are not not in the major networks, mm-hmm. but some of the networks that are looking for their own content, because the setting we've got a we got a world, right? And we've we're showing ninety minutes because the film is ninety minutes long, and it's actually ninety minutes in their life. It's a ninety. It's the runtime is the same time as what hap- what transpires in the film, right? So we're looking at ninety minutes in this entire world. Mm. I mean, that's it's ripe to. To be a TV, because there's so many places you could go with this. Right. So many sp- spinoffs you could do with it. I mean, yeah, I mean, literally. But so that would be an ideal situation. Is that going to happen? <laughs> you can always dream big, right? That's right. That's right. Thank you so much for this conversation. For I have so much enjoyed it, and I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see your movie. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait either. <laughs> <laughs> Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, or two friends, or three friends, or all of your friends. Share it like crazy. You can follow us on all the major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can also support us via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artist soapbox. Thanks so much. And we're out.